Hi, this is Yolanda. I'm sharing with you the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832 to 1914. And we're in chapter 44. Um, and the heading is Corrections. Thank you for joining me. From Brother A.C. the following corrections. A. In the issue of November the 21st, 1936, containing a reference to Brother C.E. Butterworth securing for Brother Joseph the privilege of addressing an assembly of students of a college at Denison, Iowa, there is appended a picture of Apostle C.A. Butterworth with the statement that he had been instrumental in securing the invitation and later served many years in Australia. There is confusion here between Brother C.E. Butterworth and Brother C.A. Butterworth. The two men were half-brothers. It was Cornelius A. Butterworth who was the Apostle and was in Australia as early as 1888, while the lecture mentioned was delivered in 1897. The error was made doubtless by those who selected the picture to accompany the article. B. In Herald of January 23rd, 1937, mention is made of a visit to Wirt, Indiana. What Brother Joseph says about elders M. R. Scott Jr. and W. C. Marshall is true as to the fact of their apostasy, but it was the Baptist Church which Brother Marshall joined instead of the Christian. C. In the same issue, describing conditions at Wirt, Brother Joseph brings up the strawberry question mentioning Brother Kaplinger and Brother Sappenfield, who lived in Bryanville. There is evident confusion here between the Bryanville and the Union Wirt branches, for the former is located in a country which was and still is devoted to the cultivation of strawberries, while the latter is in a grain section. The two places were about 100 miles apart. And we return to the memoirs. Brother W.E. Chapman writes from Higby, Missouri, that the name winning on page 1200, bottom of middle column, issue of September the 26th, 1936, should be win. He adds, brother and sister D.T. Win and family were here at that time. Later went to Kansas City where brother Win died at the home of his daughter, Sister Emma Etzenhauser, in Independence. Thank you, Brother Chapman, signed AA. Next heading, next heading, Resolution and Reply. The conference adopted the following preambles and resolutions expressive of, conf of uh, confidence suitably engrossed and presented. Whereas President Joseph Smith was ordained President of the High Priesthood at Amboy, Illinois, April 6, 1860, 50 years ago today, and whereas under his administration, supported by the faithful ministry and loyal membership, the faith of the Church has been vindicated, the confidence of the people restored, the work honoured and extended at home and abroad. Resolved that in connection with the celebration of this semi-centenary jubilee anniversary, we commend the administration of President Smith and, the, and express our continued confidence in his integrity. And resolved further that we commend his spirit of Christ-like service in the interests of the work and of the people of God that we pledge him our continued support in the further performance of his duty, praying that God may bless him with that measure of health and grace that shall qualify him to continue in the administration of his important office until, in the wisdom of God, his labour shall be full and complete. In accepting this token of confidence from his assembled brethren, the beloved leader addressed them. And these are the words of Joseph Smith III. Time has been well employed and, as is the custom of time, has had no regard to men and women. I might speak at considerable length. I am admonished 
but there is a fitness on such occasions as these to observe what time emphasises the brevity of human life. I find myself in the possession of the apostle who, standing before the king, said he counted himself happy to represent the cause of his master. I count myself happy that my friends have not waited until I was deposited in the grave before bringing flowers to manifest their goodwill and the love and regard which they had for me while I was living. They have offered me a tribute today that surpasses all of all the floral offerings ever placed upon the tomb of any man who had lived and died. And I would be unworthy of the name I bear, unworthy of the association in which I spent my life, unworthy of the confidence and trust which you have expressed toward me, unworthy of any tribute that any heart has offered today, if I would not say to you, I appreciate what you have done. It has not been the fortune of many men to sit and listen to such encomiums as has been passed upon me, or to receive such tribute for the feeble efforts they had been able to make as I have been permitted to receive this day. Sitting in your midst and listening to that which has been said, retracing the history of the past, the work which we have been striving to do, I feel a sense of unworthiness so complete that I am almost tempted to put my hand upon my mouth and cry unclean. And yet in harmony with the statement that was made by two of those who have spoken, as I had stated it at the Amboy Conference, I feel the assurance that the spirit which dictated my reception at that time has borne witness all along the way, and I believe before God it will continue to do so. Hence I have confidence in saying that when this spirit fails to testify, men will fail to receive the knowledge that was promised by Jesus Christ, the great mediator, the great ambassador, the one upon whom alone we can trust for the complete establishment of that rule and reign which shall bring peace, universal peace, to mankind. I congratulate you this day, not upon the fact that I have lived to meet with you, but that God has been pleased to add such a representative assembly of witnesses to bear testimony to these few and myself of what was done 50 years ago. And as the Spirit has testified to these, as you have heard from the lips of Brother E.C. Briggs, so has that Spirit testified to you. And I bear you this tribute, that in all my labours, in all my journeyings, I know not a place among the people called Latter-day Saints where I have not been, and am not now welcomed as a co-worker and associate. I claim no greatness in myself. I know how feeble I am. I know how weak are the efforts which I have made, but I have been pleased to put myself at the dictation of the forces that must govern those who appreciate the truth, and I feel the consciousness within me that my motive has been correct and good. My effort may have been feeble, I may have made mistakes, but I feel absolved from blame so far as the motives underlying are concerned. I conclude by quoting a portion of a poem which I remember hearing Brother Zenus H. Gurley repeat at times, expressing the peculiarity of the judgments of men. Cruel and cold are the judgments of men, cruel as winter, cold as the snow, but by and by the will, sorry, but by and by will the deed and the plan be judged by the motive that lieth below. May God's peace be with us and his spirit continue until the last effort has been made, until there shall come the glad sound, return thy work is done, and the reign of righteousness and peace be ushered in forevermore. Next heading, other tributes. In the evening the programme of celebration continued. 
the first address being made by Bishop Richard C. Evans, in which were the words, We have come not only to worship God in the best and highest condition of our spiritual development, but to do honour to the priest of God, to the most conspicuous character, the choice of God to lead his people in the most momentous age of the world. He is present, many of you have known him all your lifetime. To us all, he has been the children's friend, the youth's advisor, the preacher's example, and the unblemished representative of God among men. He came to the church when it was under the ban of suspicion. He has championed the cause amid the gloom of misunderstanding. He has stood in the front of the ranks amid the roar of the battle. He has championed the cause for 50 years and has been in all those years an example worthy of imitation, kind and gentle, just and generous, good and honourable, even though who, those who eloquently misrepresented the cause he loved dearer than his life have frequently spoken in the highest and most glowing terms of the man, forgetting that he was really the product of the latter-day glory, the output of the angel's message. If his character was without reproach in the way of conduct, it was because that character was formed under the principles of the latter-day work. A lengthy poem called Atua Speaks Again, written by Vida E. Smith, was read by Mrs. M. A. Etzenhauser. It was preceded by the following explanatory statement. The jubilee celebration of Joseph Smith's presidency would hardly be complete without a mention of the joyful reception given him by the saints of the South Seas when, in 1874, they heard that the good man to whom Atia, God, speaks good words, had taken his father's place in memory of those faithful ones and in honour to the man from Nauvoo this little offering is made. B.E.S. The poem was inspired by a contemplation of the splendid work done in the South Sea Islands by the early missionaries Charles Wondell and Claude Roger. Edmund L. Kelly, presiding bishop of the church, then paid tribute to an address entitled Attitude of President Joseph Smith in Doctrine and Morals. From it are gleaned the following extracts. To judge correctly, a person who comes before us claiming to be a teacher sent from God, we must hear what he has to say. Men and women claiming to be of the Christian faith who do not do this place themselves in, no, in an attitude against the Christ and in an attitude against the claims of the prophets of the past. Instead of harmonising with the noble and true of the past, as shown by the history of the times, wherever God has had a people. Let us examine our president for a few moments. At the outset, when he presented himself to the church, he said, I believe in the doctrines of honesty and truth. The Bible contains such doctrines, and so do the Book of Mormon and the Book of Covenants, which are auxiliaries to the Bible. Thus he placed himself squarely upon the records that had been accepted as true. Someone might ask why name all three works. These three had been accepted as the standard works of the church, and this principle is laid down in a divine communication that the three agree in doctrine and teaching, and if any person wishes to find fault with the religion of the reorganised church, as it has been presented by the president for the past 50 years, if he can find that in any principle of doctrine or faith, either of these books disagree with the others, then that will be a fatal error to the work presented, for the Lord has put himself on record as affirming that they are true. So when the president comes before us and says that uh, that this teaching is good and to be followed, he places himself upon the standard that is recognised as the proper one. And from that standpoint, he ought to be judged. If he is in harmony with these books, he should be commended by the people on this side and will be commended by the master on the other. Again, he stated, 
Should you take me as a leader, I propose that all should be dealt with in mercy, open as to Gentile or Jew. But I ask not to be received except as by the ordinances of the church. Is that proper doctrine? Is it the doctrine found in the scriptures? If the president has taught the truth, as it is contained in the three books, then we will commend him for having done his duty in the past. And I will say, if any of you can refer to a single principle that he has taught, which is not in accordance with the three books, then we may justly arraign him before the judgment bar and let him answer for it, as everyone will have to answer by and by. I feel thankful this evening in looking over the period that he has wrought in the church to find that he not only placed himself upon record affirmatively as a man of prayer and in speech showing meekness of spirit, as we have heard, but that he also placed himself upon record as being in harmony with the entire law and demanding that, in his own work, he should perform the ordinances of the church and stand in harmony with them. I've been before the people a little in different places, done a little canvassing of the evidence of doctrinal authority, have been ready to receive anyone who is in accordance with the teaching of the books, but must confess after due examination that Joseph Smith, the son of the martyr, is the only one whom I have found who has been found in harmony with the record. If any other claimant wishes to be measured by the record and can abide the test of the same, I am willing to say, God bless you, and to extend the right hand of fellowship. But none, none can fill the measure who say they have done away with the word or that the law or rule of life has been changed. There is no other competent, competent evidence by which the people can test the leadership. It is by the word of God that the leader is properly tested and this furnishes the only true test. If a person should come to you and claim that he has the right and authority to change any of the ordinances of the church or has a priesthood higher than the law, would you consider him a safe man to follow? Would he be in harmony with the doctrine of Christ as taught by the apostles? Christ said, If any come and abide not in this doctrine, then he hath not God. This is the test. But if he abides in the doctrine, then he hath both the Father and the Son. Testing our precedent by this rule of justice and right, and for the last 28 years standing in a position where, if a single complaint should have been made against him for a breach of doctrinal teaching or a failure of uprightness in his life, it would have been put in my hands. I think I can safely affirm that our precedent has stood the test and that by the rule of the doctrinal examination, he is the one who, in fact, and of truth, came in at the gate and was ordained to teach the revelations the church had received and should receive. Next heading, literary contributions. Next heading, literary contributions. Fifty years of literary work of President Joseph Smith was the subject of an address by one of his counsellors, Albert A. Smith. After discussing various styles of writing, the following paragraphs were presented. I'm glad that our senior editor never cultivated the literary, literary style of going a long way round to reach a given point. Had he done so, he would never have reached many points during his 50 years of editorship. In a way, he had accomplished a literary triumph because I presume a few of his readers ever stopped to think whether or not he had a style, and that is a literary triumph. Not to permit style to intrude himself itself upon the notice to the exclusion of the matter presented. So far as the merit of the matter that he has presented in his writings is concerned, I feel that it is worthy of the highest tribute that we can give it tonight. During the years he has constantly taught the highest and purest morals, and so far as doctrine is concerned, he has presented the true doctrine as taught by our Lord Jesus Christ and committed to his care. 
There are two questions that may be asked concerning any matter that is to be presented either from the pulpit or from the press. First, is it true? And second, is it profitable? Our senior editor has conscientiously faced and answered these questions for 50 years. He has never knowingly presented a single sentence in the Saints' Herald that was not true. And I believe that he has published very few things that were not profitable. It is difficult to overestimate the extent and greatness of the work that has been done by the Saints' Herald during that period of time. It has gone out week after week, bearing the messages that he has written, sometimes in hours of great labour and mental stress, and sometimes when thrilled and lifted up by the Holy Spirit. And these messages have gone to the four corners of the earth. President Smith has also been known to an extent by the poems and songs he has written. He is naturally possessed of a very fine literary taste that has been cultivated by a careful reading of the American and English poets. And some of the poems he has written claim the admiration of the saints. One of them, which I will read to you tonight, written several years ago, is entitled Lights on the Other Shore and seems especially interesting on this occasion. An aged man stood where the world ways meet, the incoming tide of eternity's years. His steps had grown slow and his eyes were wet, with the dews of humanity's tears. But his heart was strong and his hope secure, and he sang with a confidence steady and sure. Oh, the beautiful lights on the other shore, out on my path they are shining so bright, the beautiful lights that now beckon me o'er. They do not seem far from me here tonight. His gaze grew more fixed as he raised his hand to shadow his eyes as he looked again, for it seemed to his soul that the faraway strand shone free from the sadness of sorrow and pain. Near and more near seemed the lights on the shore, brighter and clearer than shining of yore. Oh, the beautiful lights shining out from the shore, over my pathway so shimmering bright, the beautiful lights inviting mirror, so bright they are nearer than ever tonight. So this aged man sang, as lifting his head, his feet still fixed on the shores of time. He gazed on the glow the distant light shed, hearing the music of the faraway chime. His heart grew light, he was cheerful and strong, knowing the summons was coming ere long. Oh, the beautiful lights on the sands far away, shining across from eternity's shore. The beautiful lights still cheering the way, oh, beautiful bells still calling me o'er. We realise that for him the lights are shining brighter on the other shore, but we trust he will not be called to pass over and greet them for a long time to come. In conclusion, I wish to call your attention to one of his well-known hymns, one that we will that will be sung tonight, Tenderly Lead Thou Me On. It is a prayer as well as a hymn. Tenderly, tenderly, lead thou me on, on over the way where my Saviour hath gone. Bright on his pathway the sunlight hath shone, tenderly, tenderly, lead thou me on. Close to, thy, to his hand I so tremblingly clung, Faint were the songs I so doubtingly sung. Brokenly falling from faltering tongue, Tenderly, tenderly, lead thou me on. Trustingly, trustingly, forward I go, Waiting instruction, the pathway to know, Watching the promise that beams from the bow, Tenderly, tenderly, leading me on. Angels have trodden the thorn-plated or planted way, Guide thou me, Lord, that I... Go not astray. Strengthen me, Lord, that I like them I may stay. Tenderly, tenderly, led by thee on. Faithfully, faithfully, holding my hand on the rough, slippery heights, safely I stand. Looking away to the heavenly strand, tenderly, tenderly, leads he me on. Now has my weak heart grown trustingly strong. Ways have grown short that seemed once to be long. Gladly I join in the triumphant song, tenderly, tenderly, leading me on. 
Cables of congratulations from saints in England and Germany were read, as well as messages from all parts of the United States. The feelings of absent members were perhaps typically expressed in the wire from the Los Angeles branch, signed by its pastor, Elder T.W. Williams, in which, after greetings and good wishes, were the words, Your loyal, unsullied service is an inspiration, your patience and fortitude a benediction. Next heading... An analysis of character. From the pen of Elder Duncan Campbell came a very thoughtful analytical sketch of the leader from which the following extracts are taken. Loyalty to the work, the church and the brethren individually is one of the leading traits of the character of President Joseph Smith. When the little band that gathered at Zarahemla, forming the nucleus of the new organisation, which finally eventuated in the reorganisation, had received intimation from the Spirit, confirmed from time to time by subsequent manifestations that the Lord would send the seed of Joseph to preside over the high priesthood, their patience seems to have been sorely tried over what appeared to be hesitancy on the part of the son of Joseph to respond to their invitation to assume the position his father had held in relation to the church. In the light of experience and subsequent events, however, the deliberation thus manifested is clearly seen to have been part of divine wisdom. His loyalty to the claims of pure truth served to make him cautious and careful in reaching a decision, in order that the decision once reached might be one by which he could stand throughout all his future, no matter what the outcome might be. This decision involved several considerations. First, was he to think was he to have an active part in the work left by his father? If so, what direction should the activity assume? With which, if any, of the bodies claiming to represent that work, should those activities be associated? His sense of loyalty to the work demanded that such questions, when answered, should be answered right. So notwithstanding the pressure brought to bear upon him from different quarters, he waited until the light came, clear and undoubted, and when the light did come, he walked in it and has continued to walk in it ever since. The certainty which came to him by this process of waiting has enabled him to steadfastly pursue the ever to pursue the even tenor of his way through the ensuing half century without faltering, many times in the midst of sore trial and discouragement. In his loyalty to the church, he has been constantly faithful to the pledge given by him at the outset, that he would promulgate no doctrine not approved by the church or the code of good morals. When once many years ago, in an assembly of the saints, I heard him declare with manifest feeling that he had deliberately cast in his lot with the reorganisation for success or failure. It caused me to regard my relationship or my relation to the church from a new point of view. Up to that time, I had regarded it from the side of success only. But his saying carried with it the sentiment that the Lord had designated his place of service and it became him to occupy it without question through good report or through evil report and this because of the calling and this because the calling was not of men but of god and because his loyalty to the church was simply a test of his loyalty to god whether or not the church should finally accomplish all that was expected of him in harmony with this declared purpose he has given the church his ungrudging and unstinted service he has allowed no business ventures of a personal nature, no alluring schemes for individual aggrandizement to draw his thought, attention or interest away from his duty as the chief officer and counsel of the church. 
the large degree of wisdom and good judgment with which he has been endowed has ever been freely at the command of the body under his care according as its needs required or seemed to demand he has borne with unwearied patience and forbearance the unreadiness of the church to respond to the instructions given for its direction and he has endured without murmur or complaint the evil consequences arising from that reluctance to follow the divine counsels the fact that he has taken advantage of no opportunity for personal advancement merits special appreciation in his address to the brethren april the sixth eighteen sixty as he was about to assume his place at the head of the church he made the following statement i do not propose to assume this position in order to amass wealth out of it neither have i sought it as a profit we can better appreciate the fidelity with which he has carried out this assurance if we consider for a moment how others placed in a similar position have acted how they have used the power placed in their hands for their own personal advantage and aggrandizement how tens of thousands hundreds of thousands yes millions of the other of the money of the people under one pretext or another found its way into private coffers for the enrichment of themselves and families as in the case of young dowie eddie and others i suppose none of us will ever know how many instances have occurred during the years of his long service wherein president smith might have used circumstances and conditions to his own private gain had he been so minded his nature however is so devoid of avarice in any form that the opportunities afforded to enrich himself at the expense of the church or its members caused him no temptation even when suggested by brethren or members less scrupulous than he in all his teachings he has faithfully conserved the doctrine of the church the doctrines of the church in his first address he said i believe in the doctrines of honesty and truth the bible contains such doctrines and so do the book of mormon and the book of covenants which are auxiliaries to the bible other men have indulged in speculation concerning things not fully revealed but such has not been his practice he has been content to wait for the coming of the light that gives certainty and by which it is safe to walk rather than to plunge rashly into untried ways his constant endeavour has been to call the people back to the old paths of virtue and truth in proof of this we refer to his first general epistle of july nineteenth eighteen sixty one addressed to all the scattered saints this epistle appears elsewhere in this book Aye. he has not only been faithful to the teachings of the books as they relate to the special doctrines of the church but also in that light in which they maintain the code of good morals his face has ever been steadfastly set against immorality of every phase and form by precept and example he has emphasized everywhere the necessity of an upright life proceeding from a pure heart dwelling in a clean body in public and private his voice has been earnestly raised against the evils growing out of the use of intoxicants hence his lectures in behalf of the temperance cause have carried great influence the purity of his own life has been to many one of the strongest proofs of the falsity of the charges of immorality insinuated against his father i can well remember how deeply this thought affected my own mind at the time of my first meeting with him during the general conference of eighteen seventy three i was quite conscious of the fact that the effect of the impression that might come to me in regard to the purity of his character would very largely influence the attitude of my mind in the estimate i made of his father in this respect during the conference and some days that i remained at plano after adjournment i had several times the privilege of enjoying the hospitality of his home and of coming into personal contact with him as well as the 
the brothers Alexander and David. To my intimates, I expressed myself as perfectly satisfied with what I observed, and I returned to my field with a deep feeling that a bad man could not have been the father of three boys whose characters impressed me. with such a profound sense of purity and rectitude. His loyalty to his brethren individually has been equally as marked as that to the church as a body and to the work as a whole. How many of the brethren can testify that when they have been made the victims of detraction because of having stood in the breach against evil and wrong, brother Joseph has manfully stood by them and upheld their hands by his whole-souled sympathy and influence. And even if a brother committed an error of judgment, if his heart was right, if he loved the work, he was not given the cold shoulder, but was encouraged to amend the mistake, correct the fault, and move forward to renewed effort. Fortified and enlightened by the results of his experience, Brother Joseph has been especially sympathetic with those who, through youth and inexperience, have found the path of the public witness for Christ rough and thorny. What comfort and encouragement have attended the cheerful words of hope and confidence, fresh from a heart brimming with wholesome fellow feeling. He has furnished a fine example of the true socialistic feeling, using the word not in its partisan sense, but in the sense of good fellowship. There seems always to have been present with him a sense of comradeship that demanded for the friend or brother consideration and attention equal to that shown to himself. Hence he thoroughly despised and resented toadyism or anything that savoured of it. He would not have his brethren ignored in the effort to pay special attention to himself because of his official position. More than one instance has come into more than one instance has come within my knowledge in which an attitude of that kind has been met with practical though tactful rebuke. On one occasion, while proceeding on a short mission in the country with two other brethren prominent in the church they reached the house of a good brother well to do some time after the noon hour the family having already dined the good-hearted sister and housewife at once proceeded to arrange the table with the wherewithal to appease the hunger of the elders whether potatoes were unusually scarce or whether there was but one left over from the family dinner is not remembered. At any rate, after the elders, ha elders had been seated at the table, Joseph, between the other two, and Blessing, had been asked, the good sister, coming up behind, placed a good-looking potato of fair proportions on Brother Joseph's plate, but put none on the plates of his companions. For a moment the gaze of the president rested on the potato, and then deliberately thrusting his fork into one end of it, he drew his knife across it, dividing it into two equal parts. He then placed one half on the of the plate. He placed, let me start again. He then placed one half on the plate of his left-hand neighbour and the other half on the plate of his right. The action spoke for itself. It said, I will not consent to be favoured above my brethren. I resent everything of that kind. As a token of my disapproval, they shall share the potato between them, and I shall go without. How much the sister profited by the lesson is not known, but it is hoped that it was taken to heart in the spirit in which it was given. I had this account from one of the parties present. Another incident to which a similar lesson was taught came under my own observation brother joseph was driving across the country in company with a late brother david dancer joseph being the driver passing through a small town 
they fell in with a number of brethren of their acquaintance, who had just emerged from a cottage in which they had been administering to a sick child. As the elders came out of the house, they were attended by an elderly sister, the grandmother of the child. She had never met the prophet of the church, and learning he was in the carriage on the opposite side of the street, started forward to pay her respects. As she approached, Brother W. W. Blair, one of the elders present, said, Brother Joseph, this is Sister Blank. As she neared the buggy from Brother Dancer's side, Brother Joseph, quick in courtesy, said, Sister Blank, this is Brother Dancer. But the sister, too intent on seeing and greeting the prophet, just then to have eyes for anybody else, extended her arm over and passed Brother Dancer's outstretched hand in order to grasp Brother Joseph's. But in this she was disappointed, for Joseph, noting the slight offered his brother, just touched up the horses and away they went, leaving the prophet worshipper standing in the street, gazing after the swiftly moving carriage in open-mouthed bewilderment. I have often wondered whether she really understood what it all meant, and if, on meeting Joseph again, she tried to toady to him to the ignoring of others. The traits of character which have been considered furnish a key to the cause of the so-called failures of President Smith. His failures and his successes spring from the same root, and when looked at from the right point of view, his failures are as credible as credible let me say that again, as creditable to him as his successes. When careful analysis I'm tripping over my words, I apologize. When careful when carefully analysed his failures will be found to have resulted from the efforts of his brethren to make a big man do the work of a little man. It has been like trying to make a £2,000 Belgium work in the harness of, the, of a Shetland. Business duties were laid upon him which required that cheese parring in the matter of wages and prices and that attention be pet to petty details which are marked features of the necessities of business as conducted at the present day. Wealth is accumulated by men whose sense of human pet fellowship and community of interest with all men in the benefits of life is not always so highly developed. Large properties are secured by men who can, without a qualm of conscience, take for their own individual benefit out of a business amounts of for five dollars per day up to any sum that might be mentioned and at the same time because they have the power compel their fellow workers who have borne the burden and heat of the day to forego all benefits of life except such as can be secured for a paltry dollar or two or less or even less for a like period President Smith is not built after that model. His nature has been cast in a larger mould. He possesses that sense of fellowship with his brethren, which makes him feel that whatever is good enough for him is none too good for them, and hence his management of business has been criticised. The task of scaling down the wages and prices of other men to a percentage below his own is a function uncongenial, uncongenial, as it is entirely foreign to his disposition. He could not enjoy a success secured in that in that way. He could not be a muckraker. In John Bunyan's sense of the word, his sense of gospel equality is inborn. It is a part of the man. Hence, in whatever service he may be engaged, in business, temporal or spiritual, it is bound to shine out. His greatness of soul has been brought out by his experiences in business affairs. 
Many present will no doubt recall an occasion when in a public assembly he referred to his release from business management because of alleged incompetency. While feeling deeply the humiliation of the circumstances, looked out from a certain point of view, nevertheless he could speak of it without the least shade of bitterness, without any effort at self-justification and without casting any reflection whatever on the judgment of the brethren concerned in his release. I do not know how many of the brethren gave him a personal expression of their sense of the nobility of spirit manifested by him on that occasion, but I do know that very many felt and appreciated the uplift given them by his example. Few there be who could have risen to such a height under such circumstances. He is easily moved to tears. W. W. Blair, writing of his address, claiming the presidency of the church, says that it was delivered most of the time in tears. He is easily touched by the sorrows and sufferings of others. His hand has ever been ready to second the impulses of his benevolence when confronted with the evidences of necessity. His home has ever been open to the homeless. Those who were without means of shelter found it within his doors. He has been a friend to the friendless, a tower of hope to those in despair, a safeguard to those exposed to untoward influence, and he has ever been open and accessible to those needing counsel and advice. Men who have sought and received his advice have assured me that the counsels he gave, even in their private affairs and matters of business, have uniformly been profitable and turned out as he indicated. Many instances—I'll say that again. Many instances could be given, if time and space permitted, and I am sure there are many present here who can bear personal testimony to the truth of what is here stated. The counsel given in spiritual matters to the ministry and to the saints in general, in private conversation, in public addresses, at the general conferences and other assemblies have had such a far-reaching effect upon the ministry, the membership and the church in general that only long eternity can reveal the extent of it. His special gift as a presiding officer has been recognised even by those not of the church. The body has ever realised that it had its head on when he occupied the chair in the General Assemblies and it is highly gratified with the prospect of his having, in this regard, a worthy successor. We have in the church many brethren possessed of a high order of presiding ability, but it is no disparagement of such to say that, as compared with Joseph, in the power of control and direction and in the preservation of order, they hold second place. The educational influence of his efficiency in this respect has made a wonderful improvement in conduct in the larger assemblies of our people. This influence has permeated the entire church, the officers and members of all the quorums, from the highest to the lowest, have been benefited in discipline and training for the direction of their own meetings by witnessing the example and practice of our chief presiding officer. In him, they have been able to see the great advantage arising from the exercise of personal control and restraint, giving striking proof of the saying, he who would others command must have himself well in hand, not only in quorum meetings, but in mission, stake and district conferences, in branch business meetings, in the general and local conventions of the Sunday School and Religio, as well as in gatherings of the other organisations for good among the saints, have these practical lessons been taken to heart and observed. If one wishes to get a slight idea of the extent to which this kind of training and dis discipline has affected the capabilities of our people, let him go into assemblies of other bodies 
than our own and notice the difference in the efficiency of the conduct of the business in hand, you'll be surprised, and agreeably so, to find how far our people are in advance along this line. This paper should not close without some reference to his sterling loyalty to the law and government of the land. He was one of the committee appointed to prepare a preface to that section of the Book of Doctrine and Covenants which makes known the political faith of the reorganisation. We have space to quote only a few sentences of this preface, which was written during the progress of the War of the Rebellion and sets forth the following sentiments. Rebellion, we are told, is as the sin of witchcraft, and witchcraft was anciently a crime punishable by death. Rebellion is no less obnoxious now than then. The evils resulting from it are as great now as then, and it should find as little favour and sympathy with the people of God now as it has in any past time. The fact is, God has always called his people to peace, to be obedient to kings, governors and rulers in general, except when they dictate in matters of religion, matters pertaining to the salvation of the soul. It is thereby the duty of all saints to set a bright and worthy example in this respect to the erring and disobedient family of man. The following instruction with reference to political duty was given the saints at a special conference at String Prairie, June 20th to 22nd, 1863. There is another thing that we should avoid, and that is mixing in politics to an undue degree, for we are apt to get irritated. This does not preclude us from using our right of elective franchise, for on the contrary it is our duty to vote for the best man, and the man who does not vote is just as much to blame for having bad men in office as those who vote for them. We should use all the means in our power to inform ourselves so that we can vote understandably or understandingly. I'm going to leave that there and carry on in the next episode. Thank you for listening.